When we ask people across the evangelical church, um, have they ever been uh, in a personal, meaningful encounter with God himself, 72%, almost three out of four say that they have. There's been at least one time in their life where they've been in a room and God was present. 14% said that that has never happened to them in their life. Think about that. Followers of Jesus Christ but I've never been in a room where I have sensed God was palpably present in that room. Another 14% said, it's happened to me, but not in the last year. About half of the Christians tell us that it has happened to them as recently as last week. When we ask them to articulate uh, what it means then for them to worship, the two most common answers they give are, A, well, I went to church, and that's worship, or B, I heard a sermon, and that must be worship. Uh, Of those uh, who try to take worship and build it into the rest of their week, let me say that in slow motion, of those who try to worship at different times in the week, less than one in four are in that category. About 22, 23%, closer to one in five. So typically what happens then in the churches, and I think it happens here, maybe it's you, is that you come to church one time a week and that is the moment, or you hope, that you get into the presence of God. I hope on a weekly basis what you would say is, I have encountered God all throughout the service. About eight, ten years ago, I was teaching a class for the Wesleyan Church on theology, and so I asked the students to go home and, and position themselves outside of the sanctuary, and as people were leaving, would they please ask them the question, did you or did you not encounter God in there in a meaningful way? What I learned is that about half of them did not. Uh, Of those that did, they were to ask two more questions. The first one was, where in the service did you encounter him? What was the signature moment when you knew, that's it, God is in this place? Then the second question is, what is the most dominant thing that you can say you experienced about God? What about him Did you just worship? I was trying to find out if their worship was connected in any way to theology. Because most often worship today, even Christian worship, is just a generic feeling of awesomeness. But if you think about it, that could be said for an encounter in any religion. So we're looking for something that distinguishes the Christian God from other gods. As unpopular as that may be, I was looking for ways to articulate a distinction between the Christian God and all other gods. What I learned is that the most dominant place in the service where God is encountered was the singing, the music. I was offended. And the most prominent feeling or thing they could say about God in that moment was that he was awesome and that he loved them. By a ratio of almost 10 to 1, respondents said they experienced the love of God to the holiness of God. Not that they're in conflict, they're not, but those are two distinct 
distinctly different emotions. So I begin to wonder if worship in Christian churches is really an hour of self-affirmation. I begin to wonder if it's a place where Christians come together today to find out all that we're doing well and all that needs to be affirmed. And then what does that leave unsaid? I would imagine if you'd position yourself outside. I mean, you may do it if you want, and please email me the reason. What do people say when they leave our worship services? This is why the transfiguration is such a powerful story because it begins to show us the balance that worship has. It shows us how relevant it is, how powerful it is when it's done right. What I understand from reading the story of the transfiguration is that it is actually two stories rolled into one. It's not just one story. The first part of that story occurs while Jesus is with his disciples uh, in Caesarea Philippi, about 10 miles inland. He says to them, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus turns and says, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. My Father in heaven told you that. That's way above your pay grade, buddy. You would never know that if God did not tell you. But then Jesus goes on to say that this Son of God that Peter just said he was, and he says it four times in the original language. He must be handed over. He must be rejected. He must be crucified. And then he must rise again. Not only that, says Jesus, but anyone who is my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Not just Jesus. Anyone who is going to be his disciple. I can't say that more emphatically. Christianity is not a religion in which you watch Jesus on the big screen. It is a religion in which you engage with Jesus in daily life. You follow Jesus in the road that he is taking. His life becomes your life. You are enmeshed and united with him. That is the heart and soul of the Christian religion. Immediately following this, the disciples must be thinking to themselves, well, if we're supposed to follow you, where are you going? So in all three synoptic gospels, the very next scene is Jesus takes his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain. And when they get up on top of the mountain, Luke says his face is changed. The word literally means to be pulled back, to be transformed as he pulls back what they thought they saw until they saw who he really was. When you're on the Mount of Transfiguration, you see not just the person you're following, you see Jesus in all of his fullness. And it says his clothes were dazzling white. Mark says they were whiter than anyone on earth could have bleached them. And all of a sudden there came from the sides two characters, Moses and Elijah. 
Israel's greatest patriarch, Israel's greatest prophet, appear at Jesus' side. The disciples are watching this. They're speechless. And these three characters, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, start to have a conversation about Jesus' exodus or his leaving earth when he goes into Jerusalem. And as soon as he sees it, Peter is overwhelmed at this. He says to Jesus, this is amazing. We should stay here forever. We should build three little houses, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. But he didn't know what he was saying. See, he didn't realize that Jesus is not simply on par with Moses and Elijah. He don't deserve a house like Moses and Elijah. He is better than Moses and Elijah. And they didn't realize that you can't stay here. No sooner had he said this when all of a sudden a dense cloud settled over all of the characters. When the cloud suddenly came down, the three disciples went over face first and they bowed to the ground. They were terrified is what the scripture says. Please watch this. They went from being fascinated Oh, Lord, this is amazing. We should build three places to being utterly terrified and afraid for their lives. And while their faces were down to the ground, they heard a voice for the first time. And this voice said to them, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And they finally rallied the nerve to look up. And as they looked up, the cloud was already beginning to dissipate. And when they looked, they saw one character. First, there were three. And then there came a cloud. This is my son. Listen to him, it said. And when the cloud disappeared, there was only one. There was no mistake who they were to listen to, who was better than all of the rest. Have you ever been in a place where God came down? I'm not asking you, have you been to church? Some of you have been to church so long, you're confusing that with a mountain. That's a service. That ain't a mountain. That's not an encounter. That's a service. I'm asking you, have you ever been in a place where the presence of God settled in a heavy way in that room and you were in it? Listen to me. All of worship flows like this. Every time that we truly worship it has the same kind of movement. We never go to worship. We are always called to worship. Jesus is always saying, come with me to a mountain. And when we get to the top of the mountain, 
The character of Jesus is always transformed before our eyes. If you come and you sing and you talk to other people, but the character of Jesus is not fundamentally changed in your eyes, if you don't leave with a higher estimation of him than when you came in the room, you have not yet worshipped. Have you been in a place where at the same time you both you felt both fascination and fear. You felt the mystery, and yet you felt the tremor. There was part of you that was being exalted and elevated, and there was a part of you that wanted to run and hide. You were elevated, and yet you were humbled, higher than you've ever been, and yet lower than you've ever felt at the same time. Have you ever been in that situation? Oh, I can tell by looking around the room right now, I just done outshot a lot of the audience. I talked to a young gal, called me about 2 o'clock in the morning one time. She said, I am, I don't know what to do, Pastor Steve. I'm in my room alone. My parents are asleep. And it just seems like there's something eerie happening in this room. I said, what is it? She said, I just feel like God is, 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 is pressing in on me right now, and I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I said, you need to hang up the phone, and you need to get on your knees before your bed, and you just need to say, God, anything you want, I'll give it to you. She said, how will I know that it's God? How will I know that it's him in the room? I said, you will know. what your dad says when you ask him how you know if you're in love you got to be in it to know it it is not a place you describe from out of it it is a place that you describe when you are in it so I'm asking you have you ever been in a room where the presence of God came heavy upon that place and in the same moment you were elevated singing songs of praise you were almost mute and speechless because you could not articulate. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I said, woe is me. At the same time. I remember coming and sitting here a couple of years ago when my personal life was beginning to come unraveled. There were some things happening around the community and some things happening in our own family because we were immersed in the community and it can weigh you down. And I remember sitting here in the front row and while the worship music was going on, I remember losing my... Now, I understand, because I'm Dutch, I ain't Pentecostal. Simple as that. We don't all do what y'all do when you get full, the waving in the hands and stuff. For a Dutch person, this is called speaking in tongues. That's as good as it gets. So I would sit down here, and I would speak in tongues. But I listened to the worship. 
I listened to the music. I said the words. And as I said it, I would say it under my breath. This is true. This is right about him. This is who he is. And as I said it and as I sang it and as I meant it, it called me up the mountain. Immediately after this scene on the transfiguration where Jesus is changed before their eyes, where all of the world is set right, the way that the world is going is in full display like a pageant, like a piece of art before their eyes. All three Gospels, have I mentioned that? Say the same thing. They say Jesus took his disciples down the mountain. And when they got to the bottom of the mountain, there was a large crowd. And there was a, a father in the crowd who shouted out at Jesus. He said, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only son. A spirit seizes him. And it convulses him. The word literally means it throws him back and forth. He lashes out of control. It says it mauls him. Literally, it bruises him badly. Mark says it throws him into the fire. And then it throws him into the water. It is trying to kill my boy. Look at my boy. And then he utters those words which kind of hang over the story for everyone who reads it. He says, I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. Literally, Mark translates the original language by saying, I begged your disciples, but they lacked the power to do it. So Jesus says, Bring him to me. And while the boy is being led over to Jesus, he goes into another convulsion, gets thrown down to the ground again. He is in the middle of a seizure. When Jesus, it says, rebukes the spirit, casts the spirit out, listen to the language, then he heals the boy, keep reading, then he gives him back to his father. What is happening here is Jesus is casting out the evil, Jesus is healing, and Jesus is reconciling with his Father. Please note what is wrong with the boy and note what is wrong with the disciples. What is wrong with the boy is that he is possessed by a spirit, and the spirit is wrecking his health. The spirit is tearing away at his body. It is trying to kill him. The spirit has separated him from his own family. His father is losing faith. I begged your disciples, cast him out, but they could not. But he hasn't lost all faith because he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, look at my boy. Even if the disciples can't, can you help my boy? And what's wrong with the disciples is they can't, they can't cast them out. Now let me say that differently. What's, the problem with the disciples is not that they're disengaged. It's not that they lack compassion. The problem with the disciples is that they have no power. 
You can't compassion evil out of people. You have to have a power. And the disciples lack power. So they can help, they can feed, they can walk alongside, but they cannot ultimately cast out the evil because they lack power. My concern for the church today is that we find ourselves in this story. In the city of Marion, for instance, I wonder if we are not seized by a spirit. Now, I know that you will give me economic, racial, political, educational diagnoses. But what if the racial tensions, the political tensions, the economic tensions, the educational distance between us, what if those are but symptoms of a spirit which seizes our community? Now, I know that you have words that are six syllables long, and you love to talk about these things in scientific words. Because some of you aren't even sure you believe in the power of the devil. To you, the devil is a guy that wears red tights. And you've told yourself, if I don't believe in a guy in red tights, then I can't believe in the devil. Not knowing that there could be a devil who doesn't wear red tights. There could be someone who is underneath all of the dysfunction in our city. And sometimes... I wonder if the leaders of our community do not come to Jesus losing faith in his disciples but still wanting something from him saying we begged your disciples to cast out the spirit but they could not. Jesus, it isn't that your disciples lack compassion. They're more compassionate today than they've been in the last hundred years. It's not that your disciples are not engaged. They're in every part of our community. The problem, Jesus, is that your disciples lack supernatural power. They are helpless. They can walk alongside, they can feed, they can counsel, but they cannot cast the evil out. So if I got this right, there are two scenes, not one. There is one scene that occurs on the mountain where Jesus is changed before our eyes, and there is another scene that occurs in the crowd where all hell breaks loose. One moment we are in the presence of God. One moment we are surrounded by the powers of evil. Well, it almost sounds like Christians on a Sunday night. We pull aside, we come to church, we get lost in the rapture, but sure enough, about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, we feel Monday morning coming. So we try to milk Sunday night football just a little bit longer because it will make the day go longer. But ultimately, all football games end. I know they shouldn't, but they do. And we finally go to bed and we tell ourselves, tomorrow comes the crowd. Tomorrow I'll meet the crowd. And there is this giant disconnect 
between what happens on the mountain and what happens in the crowd. Some of us, like me, were mystics, and we love it on the mountain. Some of us, like you, are more prophets, and you love it in the crowd. The tendency is to try and drag the crowd up to the mountain so worship becomes nothing more than a seminar for how to fix the crowd. It doesn't ever transfix our eyes onto Jesus. It's not even about Jesus in many cases. It's about talking people into being more active in the crowd. There's a sense in which if you do not talk about the crowd, then you're irrelevant on the mountain. We want to drag the crowd up the mountain. That's this generation. My generation kept trying to bring the mountain down to the crowd. It never occurred to us that we were supposed to actually transform the city and the crowd. We were just supposed to ask them to come with us up the mountain. Come with me to church. That changes all things. You still don't have a job. You still haven't finished high school. You're still caught in a bad relationship. Come up the mountain, and that will change everything. But it doesn't change everything. And so people in the crowd come up the mountain halfway and realize, I can't do that. And they come back and stay in the crowd. What if the two belong together? What if all of Christian life, what if what it means to follow Jesus is to move from the mountain to the crowd, back to the mountain, back to the crowd? What if the only way of changing the crowd is to be on the mountain? What if the only way of staying forever relevant is to do something that seems for a few hours irrelevant? How would we do that? It's actually when Christ is changed before our eyes. Let me go back again. Have you ever been in a room where God came and settled upon that room? You can't think your way out of this. You can't say, well, that's a certain way of apprehending God. Get in a room and He walks in it and that'll change everything. And when it happens, you can help the crowd. But until it happens, you cannot cast the Spirit out. You do not have the power. You get the power on the mountain. So what if the power to change the crowd happens on the mountain? And what if one of the purposes of being on the mountain is to change the crowd? So that when we come into worship, we see on display the nature and the power of Jesus Christ revealed. 
We look to the platform. We hear in the songs, in the message, in the sacraments, in the scripture that's being read. We hear a tone of something like the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And we tell ourselves whatever is happening today in the city of Marion, that is the way that all of history is going to flow. It's not going to happen because a bunch of human beings bend the river. God is already bending the river. It will end in a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Period. It does not matter whether you can stop it or not. God is steering all of history in that direction. So what if when you came into church, you saw the pageant of the way the world is going on display? What if you saw the nature of Jesus, who he really is, elevated before you, so that when you left, he was the most relevant character in the room? And what if when you came to worship, you heard a word from God? It wasn't a preacher. It wasn't somebody else talking. It was God's voice himself. And you were sure you heard it in your gut. And when you walked out, you said, God has spoken to me. It would change what happens in the crowd. Until then, we can only help them. Only help them. But with two Christian universities and about a billion and a half Christian churches, and a poverty rate as high as it is, and a single parent home with four out of five kids coming from single parent homes, when you look at the state of the city, they need more than help. They need deliverance. And sometimes I wonder if all of these activities going on, if they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Sometimes I wonder if we have lost the presence in all of the structure. I wonder if the liturgy has replaced the living one. I wonder if the preacher and the musician have not eclipsed Jesus. I wonder if our talent is so loud that you can't hear him so that by the end of the day, all you've heard was a man or a woman trying to take you to another place. I wonder if you came into a room and God was there in a palpable, real sense if it would not fill you with the most relevant life that you've ever had. I'd come and I'd sit here and I would look up to the front. Since I was a, since I was a young man, my wife has been involved in the schools and she still is. And while I would sit here looking at the front with y'all while the worship was going on, I have gone through my mind the images of things that I hear, of kids that wake up and eat toothpaste because the parents aren't even up yet, and that is their breakfast, of a second-grade child who says, I know how to please a man. 
There is something wrong with that, people. Of a child that swings at the end of a rope outside the balcony because she cannot go in because mother is with yet another man tonight. You play these stories in your mind. I watch the news. I watch ISIS decapitate 20 Egyptian Christians. And I'm thinking to myself, if there ever was a time for God to rise up and defend his own, this is that time. Fight! Or move, and we will fight. And I look up on the platform, and what I saw seemed to me irrelevant. We are singing the great I am. There is no power on earth or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. And in my mind, I got all these things just whirling. And these seem like two different places. Until one day, like a bolt of lightning, it occurred to me. This is supposed to be different. This ain't a seminar. This is not a how-to clinic. This is not science where we resolve all incongruities and where we hand out step-by-step instructions. This is a work of art. You hang it in front of the people of God as they go back into the crowd and you say to them, this is the way it is supposed to be and this is the way that the world will end. This is where you are going And then with new power and new enthusiasm and an anointing from God himself, the people of the church go down the mountain. We have people in our church who do a marvelous job of translating the mountain to the crowd. We have a superintendent who comes every Sunday. He's not here, I can say it now. He was here at 8.30. He's gone. He takes notes every Sunday morning and goes back and translates those and sends them out to every one of his principals. Why? Because he says whoever, whoever's the principal of the local school controls the culture of the school. And so if I can influence principals, I can influence the culture of a school. And culture always wins. Not vision, culture. Culture wins. It is room temperature, and everybody in the school warms up or cools off to room temperature. Steve, I've seen you do the same thing. Take what happens in the service here and translate it into what's happening in the crowd. Greg, I've seen you and Jeff do the same thing. Take what's happening on the mountain and bring it to the locker room with the crowd and saying, if this is who we are, then this is how we act. You understand this is why diversity and equality in the church is such a powerful witness. Because our city is divided and the answers are not political. And even if they were, there is no model for it out there. It is only in the church where the ground is level. Everyone comes in the same amount of need and they get the same amount of grace 
and they go out as brothers and sisters. Alan Kreider says it was their worship that motivated the early church. A man would come, and as he kissed the cheek, the passing of the peace of a rich man, the stone worker would say to himself, and I, just a stone worker, have touched the cheek of a rich man. If this is not modeled in the church, the crowd has no answer. But just because it happens on the mountain don't mean it's going to happen in the crowd unless we, that's you and I, take what is happening right now and treat each other, enemies and all, like what you see on the mountain.